Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Jatia Hart. Jatia earned her PhD in nuclear engineering after beginning college at age 15. She currently works as a nuclear engineer in nonproliferation at Argonne National Laboratory with the Department of Energy. Jatia was selected in 2019 by Crane's Chicago Business 40 Under 40 for her leadership. She has also served as a briefer and if-then ambassador by the American Association for Advancement of science, an advocate for women and minorities to join STEM, and she has a YouTube web series called STEM Queens, which you can view at youtube.com backslash Jatia PhD. Jatia, we are so excited to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. I have been listening to the podcast, and first of all, I want to rent a beach house and like just have like a Iron Butterfly Sorority House. So that's also in the works. You're invited. Oh my goodness. We are in and I can tell you right now, every single guest would be there with bells on and drinks and food and you name it. That's awesome. So we love to start each episode to learn a little bit more about how you got started. So Could you tell us how you found your way into the intelligence community? Well, like a lot of your other guests, I would say by accident. I never thought I would be in the intelligence community. I, uh, you know, seen the movies and they seem pretty awesome. And, you know, it seems like a great career or not, not so much a great career, but like a very exciting career. And I never really saw myself as those characters, like a Jack Ryan or a Tomb Raider. You know, I never saw myself as as Laura Croft as a Tomb Raider, which is kind of what you see in in the IC. But it has been a very fulfilling career to be in the intelligence community. And I never thought I would make my way there as an engineer. So the way that I got into um, the IC specifically was I became a nuclear engineer and I was specifically interested in national security and nonproliferation, though I didn't know those words. I didn't know those were words that had to do with engineering. I was just good at math and science. And then I went underway on a submarine. I was in Navy ROTC in undergraduate, and I went underway on a submarine. And there I was on a boat powered by nuclear, and I was standing between two missile silos that had nuclear weapons in them. And I was like, wow, this is sort of dangerous. Who is watching this? And they were like, well, the person in charge of this boat is a nuclear engineer. And I said, well, okay, well, I want to do that. I want to be on submarines. However, Navy at that time did not allow women on submarines. So undaunted, I decided that I, instead of trying to change the Navy, 
I was going to go to school, get a PhD and be their bosses. So that's what I did. And that led me into the IC because of the connection with nuclear and nuclear technology and its dual use purposes. So I am the person who explains not only nuclear technology, but all science and technology and kind of how they, it can be used for good or evil. So I guess I am Laura Croft now or, or Jack Ryan. So I love that you used Laura Croft as a, as a reference because A, no one has, and they always use like Jack Ryan or James Bond or something like that. I love that you use that as a reference. When you were growing up, was, was it, you know, were you always good at math and science? Were it, was that something that came natural to you? What were your thoughts, you know, as a teenager? My thoughts as a teenager had nothing to do with math or science, <laughs> to be quite honest. I, I always liked math and science. I was the youngest of 10 kids. My mother was an accountant and both of them were, both of my parents were involved in the education system. My father was a school counselor. My mother was an accountant for the school system. So they always believed in education. So when other kids were doing summer camp, I was like taking extra math classes, taking extra science classes, because that is what uh, interested me. Mm -hmm. Little did I know, like it was just this thing that, you know, drew me to it. I ended up taking all the math and science classes available at my school. Like I take night classes, go, you know, where people were trying to finish their GEDs and I'm taking an algebra class for fun, you know, at 12. And it got to the point where I was out of classes. They were like, you can graduate, you know, just double up your English and history. You've done all the math and science. And so I was like, okay, didn't really want to stick around at home as a teenager um, <laughs> because, you know, there was a world out there that I, I, you know, was there for me to conquer. So why not leave? And I ended up starting college away from home um, when I was 15 years old. And that was, that was the launching pad, but I never wanted to be an engineer because it didn't really seem that cool to be quite honest. And I tried to do a lot of other things other than engineering. I actually had a stint as a model, um, which you know sounded like the coolest job ever. But what I realized is that no, it's not that cool. Um, they don't really want you to talk as a model. You know, you're not hired for your your thinking skills there. And <laughs> I think one time I was on a photo shoot and they were like, hold the pose. And I was like, well, I'm really hot and tired. And they were like, just hold it just a little bit longer. And I fainted. No and way. I fainted. And I'm not a fainter, you know. And I was like, you know what? This, this doesn't seem like a, a great career. Like, I'm telling them that I'm not feeling well. And they're like, just hold out. Just hold, you know. And, <laughs> and then I was like, when I'm 40, it would be very sad to be like a 40 year old washed up model, but I could be hitting my stride, you know, as an engineer. And that is really what did it for me to be like, okay, get, get over this not being cool thing. Just, you know, lean into what you're good at. And, and also, I mean, the experiences that I had in engineering and, and the money. So I was like, I really had to get over that. And then also just being an African-American woman in engineering, it was a little bit daunting as well. So I had to realize, you know, if this is what you want to do, you're going to have to wait on through the, the BS and grab your career. And it, it really just came down to that. Well, and you can be and you've proven to be and make engineering cool. Uh, you can be a cool engineer. 
Absolutely. I, I, when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of role models of like cool engineers. So I didn't know it was a thing that you could do. And so I had to shift the perception in my mind about what being an engineer was, you know, it's, it's not big bang theory. It's not Einstein wild hair, though. Some days my hair is Einstein wild. (laughs) Um, it's, it's what I make it. And so really, I had to get that in my head and understand and get rid of like the imposter syndrome that comes with being an engineer and also being in the IC, right? Because you you said everybody talks about Jack Ryan, but there's no female equivalent. So really my kind of community service now is to do that and be that role model to other women who are in fields that are not traditionally uh, seen as fields where females can succeed. I love that. So, you know, this kind of pulls on that thread a little bit of STEM and the role of STEM in the IC and what people think of that and what you thought of that growing up. So what would you like our audience to know about the role of STEM in the intelligence community? And what do you think are some common misconceptions surrounding the field? So I think the most common misconception is that there's really not STEM in the IC, um, but people should know that there is STEM everywhere. It's kind of interesting because every time like the government comes out with a study or some new technology, that is STEM. And actually, most of the time, that's the national laboratories where I work. Um, one great example, too, I have two great examples from Argonne National Laboratory. One is the battery technology that's in the Chevy Volt mm. that was developed at Argonne, and then it was licensed to these commercial companies for market development. So, I mean, and then the other thing is the Deepwater Horizon, when they had the oil spill, they were looking to see how they would clean it up. And the oleo sponge, which is this little sponge, just like it sounds, you put it in the water and it soaks up oil. That was a material that was developed at Argonne. So it's kind of interesting because all of this science and technology, you have to have these billion dollar places that all somebody does is think about things that they don't even know how to apply. And then the application comes along. And that's the same thing with the IC. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that the Department of Energy is actually one of the 17 intelligence community agencies. And a lot of what they do is they make the scientists at national laboratories, which are also 17 of those, available to work on technology that supports the mission of the intelligence community. So I want to kind of pull that thread a little bit farther as well, because I don't think that many of our listeners are familiar with or know what the Department of Energy or National Laboratories role is, or you you know, you kind of touched on a little bit of what they do or what they have created. Can you talk a bit more about the roles of the DOE and National Laboratories within the IC and why you were drawn to work there as an engineer? So again, there's 17 intelligence communities in in the IC in the U.S. and there are 17 national laboratories. So it's kind of easy to remember 17 and 17. And each of these national laboratories are spread all across um, the U.S. I work at Argonne, which is just outside of Chicago. And essentially, they're where stuff happens at the Department of Energy. 
So these are the facilities that come up with the ideas and the Department of Energy actually directs their work. You know, they facilitate the funding, they facilitate the, the mission of the work, but the actual work is done at the national laboratories. So DOE is actually kind of dual-headed, especially we have an Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, and it's dual-headed to the DNI and also to the Secretary of Energy. Mm. The Secretary of Energy is actually on the National Security Council, so very important. Um, DOE does so many things. Um, it does not set like energy policy, but it helps facilitate the development of technology. It does like basic energy research. And a large part of what DOE does is under the National Nuclear Security Administration. So they are the people who take care of all of the nuclear weapons. They also do all of the naval reactors and all of that technology. So they tie in to the military, but the Department of Energy is, is there, it's vast. Um, and it's, it's wide reaching. And I think a lot of people don't understand how wide reaching it is. So it goes into military, it goes into, you know, national security decisions, it touches on nuclear weapons, it touches on um, a lot of things in the US that you care about, like charging your iPhone. Wow. I mean, some of that I didn't even know. So I'm learning, I'm learning quite a bit just from that description. Why did you choose to go that route as an engineer instead of working for, let's say, a company? So this goes back to my, to my childhood and what I was actually interested in when I was a teenager. So there was this show called Melrose Place for all my millennial people. Uh, I remember um, it fondly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or maybe not fondly. I don't know if that's the right word. You snuck it. I know I was thinking <laughs> it like, what you watching? Nothing, Mom. Yeah. So around that time, you know, it was Alec McBeal, it was Melrose Place, and there was this character called, um, and her name was Amanda, you know, Heather Locklear with the tussled, frosty blonde highlights, and she wore short skirts, and she was a, a B-I-T-C-H, can I say that on here? You can was, say, yes. Okay, she was a B-I-T-C-H bitch, um, <laughs> capital B, and she, you know, made moves and made decisions, and, you know, sometimes she was hated because she was a strong woman. And um, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to, and she was in business. So I went into business. Thankfully, my mother bribed me with a car and I went into engineering. She's like, you have such good grades. I was like, all I hear is car and that's good enough for me. I saw Melrose Place. I saw Amanda with the tussled blonde highlights and the power suits. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. My mother very smartly bribed me with the car and I changed my major to engineering because that was enough <laughs> for me. Love it. Once I was in engineering, I realized that if you have a bachelor's degree in engineering, you're like always working on somebody else's project or doing the same rote kind of, you know, thing every day, producing the widgets if you work at Widgetco. Um, and I didn't want to just be doing the same thing over and over. So somebody told me that if you go and you get your PhD, then you decide what you want to work on. And I was like, yes, I want to decide. I want to lead the project. I want to lead the research. So that led me to a PhD. And then once I got into nuclear, they were like, well, everybody knows the big nuclear concepts and all the big work happens at the National Laboratory. So you can't really exactly, you know, go into a private business readily and do research 
you could do like research reactors or commercial reactors, but you kind of got that pretty much figured out. So there's not like new and groundbreaking things happening in the commercial industry. So for me, it was kind of a no brainer. If I wanted to be a nuclear engineer researcher, that I could go to the national lab. I love that. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about other jobs that you've you've held. And you worked as a briefer for a period of time. You've referred to that as a formative part of your career. So can you talk to us a bit about what you did in that role and the importance of communication in that role? If you haven't caught on by now, I love to talk. I will I will get lost in the conversation as happens to me a lot. And what I realized after becoming an engineer and starting my career is that scientists and engineers are not the best communicators. A lot of times they have so many gears we're, you know, going on in their head and so many thoughts that they may not be the best at getting that out to people. So I saw that in the intelligence community, a lot of the briefers were actually people who had political science backgrounds, Mm -hmm. who were familiar with science and engineering. And I think that it was unique that I was an engineer who also had the gift of gab. Not only do I communicate well and succinctly and I, I can tie in stories, but I like to talk um, and I like to tell stories. So I really wanted to go for the briefer position, which is which was usually given to political science backgrounds, so that I could bring my technical skills and also do what I like. Like engineering is what I'm good at, but talking is what I like. And it certainly was a formative move for me, a detail for me. Um, I really got exposure. I was the intelligence briefer to two secretaries of energy, um, Secretary Perry, and Secretary Briette, and it really gave me, like, it was eye-opening to see kind of how the sausage is made, for for lack of a better word, but just to see how National Security Council is laid out, how decisions are made, how you really have to drill down to the important aspects, and not like in science and engineering, go into every single detail, Um, and also, I liked that I got to argue my point. Um, I, I, I'm not gonna lie, I love to talk, love to argue, <laughs> and just kind of jousting with some of the very best minds in the IC was amazing. One story that I love to tell is I had a PDB, and you know, you do a briefing, and it was me and another person from an IC agency. They had one point of view, and DOE had an opposing point of view. And literally, this is a person I worked with all the time. And we were going room to room, just like duking it out on this issue. Like, like you would think we did not like each other the way we were like, you know, lobbying points. And then like, we'd come out of the room from having our, you know, meeting with that person. And we'd be like, oh yeah, so what are you having for lunch? I like those shoes, you know, sort of thing. And it, I just loved it. I loved that we had opposing views. We both felt strongly and we could respect each other enough to go in there, and she was another woman, um, and just like duke it out, go head to head, and then be okay with it. That's awesome. So it sounds like communication skills have played a key role in your success throughout your career. So how have you been able to infuse your personality into your work in communication? And has 
that ever been a challenge? At first, it was a challenge because, again, as an African-American woman um, in any space, you are probably, there's probably not a lot of people who look like you. So I remember when, you know, I first started going to meetings and usually, you know, like the person who is leading the meeting does their small talk. And a lot of times it was a man. So maybe they talk about football and everybody, you know, wanted to build, uh, you know, a sense of community. So they you know, chime in about football or whatever <laughs> that person brought up. Thankfully, I love football. So I was, you know, ready to to chime in. Oh, also go Florida State Seminoles. I just want to say that since we're talking about football. <laughs> we go no. And I remember I was like, oh, why don't we talk about other things? And, and I remember I was like, when I lead a meeting, I am definitely going to talk about exactly what I want to talk about. Um, and small talk. And so now when I go into a meeting, and it took me a while to get here, but I'm talking about Real Housewives. That's what I oh, want to talk about. Yes. We're, we're chit chatting. We talk about Real Housewives. And it's funny because when I first started doing this, I thought, oh, these men in this meeting are not going to want to talk about this. I'm going to get crickets. And sometimes I do. And a lot of times, though, I get a man who's like, yeah, I was watching that over my wife's shoulder. Did you see what so-and-so did? Did you see what she had on? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe. And I love it. I love the fact that it's like me, I'm leading the conversation and people have to adapt because we all have to come together, you know, to a common ground. So why not put your ideas out there, too? And some people can come to you. I mean, we as women, we have come to men and come to their middle for long enough. So now you can talk about this weave and these false nails if that's what I bring up. So, you know. 100%. And I I am not going to confirm nor deny that my husband might or might not participate in those conversations. <laughs> exactly. He's going to be like, my wife was watching it, but oh my gosh, isn't Nene? Did you hear what Nene said? Right. I exactly. It. So one question we often get from specifically from young women trying to enter the IC uh, has to do around confidence. So how have you built the confidence you have today? And what advice would you give to listeners who may be struggling with their own confidence in the workplace? So I'll have to say that it was definitely a building process. I have always been outspoken in my mind, but letting that shine has has been a process of getting over feeling like an imposter, like I don't belong where I am. But I, I always tell people, you belong exactly where you are. You are where you are. It doesn't matter how you got there. Um, you know, some people might say, you know, if they see me as an African-American woman, they'd be like, oh, affirmative action. Oh, gender, you know, set aside. It doesn't matter. Somebody may have got there because they cousin know or live next door to the person who was giving out the job. It doesn't matter how you got there. You're there. And if mm -hmm. you don't belong there, you won't be there much longer. So you have to have that and know that within your heart. Um, I think that the advice that I give to women is three prongs. A, you have to have a support system. Um, you have to have people who will support you because as a woman, the world is not made for us. Let's be honest. And, and the IC definitely is not, even though it is changing and improving. So there are going to be days where, you know, somebody calls you sweetheart or, you know, something else happens and you need to have that support system so you can talk out these issues and figure out how you're going to handle it and and maybe sometimes just rant. So right. this could be, 
you know, your loved ones, your coworkers, your girl group. If you are Beyonce, you know, you can call Kelly and Michelle <laughs> and you guys can talk about it. But you have to have that support system in place because it's going to get rough. Two, you have to practice. You have to practice what you're going to say when you get into these awkward situations. Um, one that pops up is um, I used to get mistaken for the administrative assistant all the time, every job that I've been in. Um, and I, you know, used to get upset and be like, oh, is it me? Do I dress like an admin? You know, do I need to step up or, you know, do I need to carry myself with more authority? And it did not matter. It, that is just the preconceived notions that some people have. So mm -hmm. I have had to practice. Like now when somebody asks me, you know, are you the administrative assistant? I got a line for them. They ask me if I'm the administrative assistant. I say, no, are you? And let it go. Like, why would you think I'm that? Are you? I mean, like maybe exactly. you're trying to associate yourself with me. And then the third thing beyond having support and practicing is really, really, really just knowing yourself. Knowing yourself, understanding yourself and understanding that a lot of times that the situations that you get into, it has nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. And it has something to do with the other person. So just knowing that, having that belief in yourself that you know you are enough. I love those. I love those three points. So our listeners may not know that you have quite a list of extracurricular accomplishments. Can you share some of the things you're most proud of and what encouraged you to take them on? I have to say that the thing that I am most proud of is my family. So I have to give oh, them a God. shout out. I have three-year-old little boy and a five-year-old daughter and a wonderful husband. So that is what I am most proud of because really in this life, if you don't have, again, that support system and my core support system is my family, you would have nothing. You know, you got you to gotta be happy at the end of the day. But also my extracurriculars right now, what, what is giving me joy, and if I was Marie Kondo, what is sparking joy <laughs> in my life is um, my YouTube series, Sim Queen. It's on youtube.com slash JTIAPHD. And it's just basically my love letter to the teenager that I was and all the teenagers who are out there who are smart, who like STEM, and who are a little confused about, you know, how to go forward and just showing them that they are amazing and that they are enough. And there are people like them who are existing and excelling in so many fields and that they can too. So that is the extracurricular that I am just reveling in. I mean, I have other things that I do. Um, right now we are in quarantine. Do we talk about quarantine here? I didn't know if it was like Fight Club, you know, one, you know, don't talk about it. <laughs> so in, in quarantine, I have had a bevy of extracurriculars. They each run about two months and then I get tired of them. So I was doing like home workouts on Zoom. I got into doing makeup. Like I, I, I revamped my whole look and I actually started doing like wig making. I don't know. That's a little weird. Like, you know, I love it. Yeah. So I've, I've always got something I cannot just stay idle. I always have something getting into something. Um, wig making is a lot like sewing. Um, and I don't know, I just got tired of like doing my hair and we couldn't go to 
the salon anymore because they were closed down. I was like, I'm going to try this. And, you know, YouTube is your best friend. And so I, I was going to ask you, did you just YouTube it? And then oh, you learned from YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. I oh just YouTube and went to like a beauty supply store and I, I've done a couple of them and um, it, it's all very interesting, but you got to, you got to keep yourself, you know, doing something. I'm definitely not going to sew clothes because that is not my thing. <laughs> and Everyone has their different artistic, uh, you know, extracurricular yeah. so that's awesome yeah i'm not gonna bake bread i do not cook the only thing i make is reservations um <laughs> is is my line because so so this has just been kind of like one of my creative outlets i love it so if people wanted to follow you on social media how could they follow you so i am also that was the, one of my things i did i, I revamped my social media so I am on Twitter and Instagram at JTIA PhD. So at Jatia PhD. Um, I do Instagram mostly. I do not do the Tiki Taki. Various reasons that TikTok is a, is a no go for me. But thankfully, people put their TikTok reels off on Instagram reels. So you will see me doing ridiculous dances. Sometimes my daughter gets in on them too, especially when she gets to scream. So sometimes she co stars with me. but yeah, I'm on social media. I, uh, <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but fun. I love it. I love it. So as you know, we end each episode with the same question. And so in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Oh, I thought long and hard about this. I pulled out the thesaurus and everything, but I have settled on Sable Sage. Oh, I love it. I love it. So tell me why. So sable because it's it's dark, it's luxurious, just like me. And then sage because it just invokes, you know, wise, intelligence, Wisdom. and a little bit quirky. So sable sage. I love it. And I think the listeners are gonna love it too. Jatia, this has really been so much fun. I hope you had fun. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I hope you continue to share your light and your love for the IC to women and young women entering the IC. Thank you so much for your service. And I hope that you do get that beach house so that we can all hang out there in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all the women who are making the IC the best that it can be. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for this amazing series. We'd also like to thank Grant Haber for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. <laughs>